And now to introduce today's speaker, I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Elizabeth Stevens, a practicing endocrinologist who currently serves as medical director of Providence Endocrinology East and West, as well as medical director of diabetes education. Dr. Stevens earned her medical degree from Vanderbilt, did her internal medicine residency here in Portland at OHSU, and then her fellowship in endocrinology with an emphasis on diabetes at the University of Colorado. Dr. Stevens first joined Providence in February 2007, and she has been a renowned clinician educator ever since. She has participated in a variety of roles, including resident mentorship, particularly at Providence Portland Medical Center, as well as development of a mindfulness curriculum and program for providers that some of you may be familiar with, known as Mindful Medicine PDX. Woohoo! <laughs> she has also participated in clinical research and extensive teaching of patients as well as providers here locally, but also nationally. And outside of work, Dr. Stevens keeps quite busy uh, with her two sons, ages 14 and 16, and regularly plays music with her husband. Dr. Stevens, we are so delighted to have you with us today. Thank you. Thank you so much, Laura, for that kind introduction. Um, it's really nice to be here in an auditorium with you all. Um, it feels a little more normal to be talking to you, talking to real people. Um, and just that whole doing it online thing has just not been my jam over this past couple of years. So thank you so much for inviting me and letting me do it here. So this is a, um, a topic that um, is a little bit out of my normal wheelhouse. Um, as many of you know, I primarily see people with uh, diabetes, type 1 and type 2 diabetes in my endocrinology practice, but I do see a lot of people with other endocrine disorders. And um, these, I thought it was, um, as I was getting ready to take my boards a couple of months ago, um, I thought it was a nice opportunity to review some of these topics, especially around adrenal issues and maybe some of the myths um, in regards to that and, and thyroid questions. I have no relevant disclosures. So here's what we're going to be covering um, in the next 45 minutes or so. Um, we're going to start off with adrenal fatigue and what we understand about it. Um, I don't really call adrenal fatigue a diagnosis, and we'll talk more about what the literature is about that, the symptoms associated with it. And I just wanted to introduce the idea that, you know, the, t the title of this talk is Endocrine Myths. Most of the, the issues that we're going to be talking about are, you know, based on science and fact and you know, um, literature, adrenal fatigue, I would say is a little bit of, to, of an exception to that rule. If anything is mythic, I would say adrenal fatigue is a bit that way. So we'll talk more about that. Um, we're gonna talk about thyroid questions that we see pretty commonly. Um, either patients bring them up or um, providers through ASK or e-consults through EPIC, or just, you know, a variety of ways that people get to us. Um, so we're gonna talk about thyroid replacement, considerations around T3. Um, a lot of people in our community ask about um, how to use T3 in combination when they have patients who are hypothyroid. Um, who needs a thyroid ultrasound? What antibody tests uh, will tell us? And then finally, how biotin and maybe some dietary um, uh, questions uh, and how they can affect uh, thyroid testing. And then finally, a little bit about ionized calcium. So I always like to keep this clinical. So this is a patient I saw within the last month or so um, who came to me with type 2 diabetes and A1C of 8.3% on basal bolus insulin. So we, we addressed that. And then kind of at the end of our conversation, uh, there was an, oh, by the way, she had questions about 
her ongoing fatigue, difficulty with losing weight, um, mood, and she mentioned that she had a neighbor who had recommended seeing, um, recommended that the patient, not me, but recommended the patient see her naturopath, um, said that this naturopath was just wonderful and could do miracles, that the neighbor had been started on adrenal support and she was feeling so much better and this was sort of a really um, a helpful therapy for her. So your patient came to you. Uh, she doesn't have a naturopath yet, but she was wondering what you think about the work of Dr. Wilson. Could she done some reading on the internet and possibly the diagnosis of adrenal fatigue and what testing that might be recommended because what she had seen online was a little bit different than, you know, what she thought maybe, um, you know, you would do as, a, as an allopathic doctor. And then, you know, thinking about supplements, should she be worried? Are there any concerns? You know, there's a lot out there that's about them being natural, but, you know, are there any side effects or issues that she should worry about? Does anyone see patients like this? Okay. <laughs> so um, this is a summary slide. So when I, when I was getting ready to do this talk um, a few months ago, I just did a, you know, a Google search to see what comes up for adrenal fatigue, and there is a ton that comes up for adrenal fatigue. So this is just kind of a smattering of basically kind of topics around, uh, around the, the idea of adrenal fatigue. So up here in the corner on the left um, is um, testing that's available to look for adrenal fatigue. Evan, has anyone here ever had a patient who's had a Dutch test or heard of a Dutch test? So there's lots of different testing that you can order online um, without really any sort of prescriptive, um, uh, any sort of prescription. Um, the Dutch test is one I've seen a lot more recently. So it's basically Dutch stands, stands for dried urine testing for comprehensive hormones. It's basically um, uh, people collect their urine four times a day at different times of day, dry it on this paper, and then send it in to their provider. Um, the test measures a variety of different adrenal um, and ovarian hormones. Um, it costs about $400. Patients come in with um, about 10 pages worth of literature around this test. So what the hormones are, what the results are, um, and what it all means. So there's, it's quite comprehensive, but that's just one example of some of the testing that you can do to investigate your adrenals um, online. Um, I will say that the patients that I've seen who've had Dutch test, testing done, I don't know what to, how to interpret that information. Um, we don't do dried urine testing in endocrinology to evaluate for hormonal deficiencies or excesses. So it's a little bit mysterious, but it is out there. So you may see somebody at some point who gets the Dutch test done. There's also a number of adrenal um, supports that you can buy and are described here. Just a variety of bottles describing adrenal formulas, capsules, um, and adrenal support that again, you can purchase online. There are a, a ton of websites that you can do, go to where providers are marketing their skills in you know, helping you meet your adrenals to understand what your adrenals might do and help what, what they can offer, the providers can offer to help you feel better. And then you know, 20 steps to heal you from adrenal fatigue. Again, targeting often a lot of women. Most of these images are around women. Um, and then finally, it's not just the alternative community, naturopaths, et cetera, that have um, kind of leapt onto this idea of adrenal fatigue. There was an article in the Washington Post a few years ago that talked about adrenal fatigue and its reality. And then, of course, on endocrine websites, there's a lot that's been written about the idea of adrenal fatigue and whether or not it's a real thing. So there is a ton of information online. So when you have patients who come in and are asking you about adrenal fatigue, I usually come into the room with the idea that they've probably done a lot of this research or already started some of this testing on their own. 
And I think in Oregon, especially, we are very influenced by our, our excuse me, our alternative providers. And we have a lot of alternative providers in, um, in the Northwest. So this is a map that just shows the United States. In green are the states where um, naturopathic doctors can prescribe and be reimbursed by insurance. Um, and in Oregon, of course, they can be primary care providers. So in, the, in, um, in Oregon, we have uh, about 1,200 naturopaths who practice. It's about 10% of the total number of providers in our state. And just to review, because I think it's important to know how naturopathic training differs from kind of allopathic or osteopathic training. Naturopaths do go through a four-year program, but the educational hours are less than half of what we get in medical in allopathic or osteopathic training. Um, and there's no expectation of residency. So often these are providers that come out of four years of education without a lot of clinical practice. There is an option for a one-year program with some of the training um, uh, programs, but that is not the standard. And I find that a lot of my patients um, who often have both a primary care provider that's an allopath as well as a naturopathic provider, so they're kind of resourcing both of these providers, um, really don't understand what the difference is between a naturopath and a, kind of a more Western traditionally trained doctor. And I often spend a lot of time talking to people about how our ideas, our training, and kind of our management strategies really do differ. So I think it's important to keep that in mind. So what is adrenal fatigue? So it's basically a syndrome that was described by uh, naturopath James Wilson back in 1980, uh, 1998. Um, and you can see here, this is uh, his book um, that you can purchase online. And then if you go to his website, there's a ton of supplements that you can also purchase that will um, are um, supposed to provide some benefit if you suffer from adrenal fatigue. Um, loosely defined, it's a weakening or burnout of the adrenal glands in response to chronic stress. And the symptoms are described here. So fatigue, especially when you wake up feeling tired in the morning, these crashes throughout the day and brain fog, increased energy in the evenings, cravings for sweet and salty foods, insomnia, weight gain, depression, and decreased libido. So kind of a mismatch of um, both uh, symptoms that seem to be associated maybe with adrenal deficiency, but also adrenal excess, it's thyroid. I mean, it's just, it's a whole lot of symptoms that don't necessarily make sense to me in terms of your adrenals not working. Um, and we'll talk more about that. It's a diagnosis that's not recognized by any endocrine organization and has no ICD-10 associated with it, so you cannot bill for um, adrenal fatigue. And this is a citation. So in terms of science around the diagnosis of adrenal fatigue, this is the, this, probably the citation that's um, mentioned most when people look at adrenal fatigue or at least are, are exploring um, what sort of scientific basis there might be to the diagnosis. So this is a review that was published in 2016, looking about 58 studies and doing, and this is really important, they did a variety of tests um, that in general are not really traditional tests that we do um, for evaluating kind of cortisol response um, and adrenal um, status. And we'll talk more about that in the next slide. So these, most of the exams were evaluating uh, direct awakening cortisol, um, the cortisol awakening response and salivary cortisol rhythms. And the results from this review really described that most of the data was pretty conflicting. Um, heterogeneity in study design, the descriptions were a little unclear, poor quality assessment of fatigue, um, false premises, invalid conclusions, et cetera, et cetera. So basically the summary from this review was that there was no substantiation that adrenal fatigue is an actual medical condition and it remains a myth. And one thing that I think is really important to also keep in mind is that you don't really want to throw the whole idea of adrenal disease out when you see somebody who comes in with some of these complaints because there is true adrenal insufficiency. 
um, that you need to be thinking about or considering. Because sometimes there are these tests that people have done through their naturopath that are distinctly abnormal, and it is really important to maybe evaluate a bit further. But I just wanted to pair these two kind of issues and just show you what the differences are. So again, for adrenal fatigue, the symptoms are very nonspecific and don't really sound like adrenal insufficiency in many cases to me. Who here has ever seen someone who's presented with acute adrenal insufficiency? Often they're people in the hospital. I mean, they're, they're usually not sort of sick. They're usually pretty sick um, and definitely don't have a lot of these symptoms that are described here in terms of a time of day of, of, of feeling fatigue, insomnia, certain foods that they're craving. That just doesn't really resonate with with me in terms of adrenal insufficiency. And then the testing for adrenal fatigue, again, like I already mentioned, is pretty atypical. These are not tests that I ever do in my endocrine practice. So salivary testing, we tend to do in people where we're worried about cortisol excess, not deficiency. Um, and then direct awakening cortisol. Again, we often do morning cortisol levels, but we don't really look at it as a, a reflection of sleep quality. It's more, you know, do you have a rise in your cortisol when you get up in the morning? So that's the contrast with adrenal insufficiency, which is described um, on the right side of the slide, which is generally associated with weakness, fatigue, anorexia, and weight loss. And that's probably what you've seen in your patients, especially who come into the hospital. They also often have nausea, vomiting, and a lot of electrolyte abnormalities. A great place to start is to, to initially init uh, evaluate with a morning cortisol. Um, especially in someone who's coming to you with concerns around adrenal fatigue, just starting with a morning cortisol is a great place to just make an easy test to evaluate. And then it's really important as you're thinking about adrenal insufficiency or evaluating someone to confirm that their adrenal fatigue isn't adrenal insufficiency, is to think about where is the lesion. So everything in endocrinology is a feedback loop. That's one of the things that's sort of a, a characteristic of my practice. So you have to think about where is the issue coming from? Is it primary? So coming primarily from your adrenal glands. And then if that's the situation, often people who have primary adrenal insufficiency or Addison's disease often have other um, autoimmune disorders, type 1 diabetes, celiac disease, or hypothyroidism. Could they have adrenal hemorrhage? Could they have infection in their adrenal glands? Or could they have adrenal hemorrhage? All of these are pretty uncommon, but that's what you need to think about when you're trying to determine where is the lesion. If it's secondary, you might need to think about is there pituitary or hypothalamic involvement? Have they been on steroids, et cetera? So if you're thinking about adrenal insufficiency, those are kind of, you need to think about what where the, where the problem could be originating from. And adrenal fatigue does not lead to adrenal insufficiency. Your adrenal glands are incredibly robust organs that can really survive all sorts of stressors. Um, it is you know, very uncommon to uh, have some sort of progressive um, development of adrenal fatigue that goes on to um, present with adrenal insufficiency. The traditional adrenal testing that we tend to do is described here. Again, here's this um, lovely feedback loop. So your adrenal glands sit down here on top of your kidneys. The cortisol feeds back to your anterior pituitary and your hypothalamus. And there's this whole cascade of hormones that come down to stimulate the adrenal gland to produce cortisol. Again, when you're evaluating adrenal uh, function, you can start with a baseline cortisol. And here's some kind of guidelines. If it's less than three to five, that's concerning for um, uh, adrenal insufficiency, over 14, probably less of an issue. And if you're not sure if it's kind of in between those two values, doing stem testing would probably be worth considering. And oftentimes I notice in the hospital, 
people are doing baseline and 60 minute cortisol values, often you can get just as much information from a 60 minute cortisol, um, especially if you're doing the testing later in the day. Remember that cortisol is a diurnal hormone. And so often if you do a baseline cortisol in the afternoon, it's often gonna be low and you might be misled to think that they have adrenal insufficiency based on that. You can also do DHEAS testing. DHEA is a um, hormone that comes from your adrenal gland. It's a precursor for other um, uh, adrenal hormones. Um, and basically, if it's normal, you've kind of ruled out adrenal insufficiency. And then remember, if you're thinking about trying to differentiate where the lesion is, an ACTH can be really helpful. ACTH testing is tricky to do, and it's a hard test to add on. So if you're thinking about evaluating the axis, you really want to do an ACTH at baseline. It's also important to keep in mind some of the other kind of uh, situations can, that can affect uh, cortisol results, and those are summarized here. You know, like I said, uh, cortisol secretion is very diurnal and very affected by people's sleep and wake cycle. So if you're seeing somebody who, you know, has chronic insomnia or works night shift or has any sort of variation in their sleep, you really need to be thoughtful about when you do their testing. And again, like I mentioned, afternoon and evening cortisols and someone who sleeps like a regular person often will be lower again because of that diurnal variation. So not to think that that's uh, actual deficiency. Um, and as I also said, urine testing is not validated for um, evaluating adrenal insufficiency. We do urine testing more for um, excess. If people have been getting steroids, especially if they've been getting injectable steroids, like into joints, repeated um, frequent injections can end up causing some element of adrenal uh, insufficiency. People who are on oral steroids, it's pretty uncommon with inhaled or topical, but it's something to consider if you're evaluating someone. Binding protein changes, if someone's on estrogen, birth control pills, or if they have liver disease, that can really change cortisol levels. And then opioids um, can have an effect on cortisol levels, but it's never been described that adrenal crisis results from opioid use. It's a little different than the gonadal axis, where we see, often see low testosterone or um, kind of uh, um, amenorrhea in people who have been on chronic uh, narcotics, but cortisol levels do tend to uh, maintain so that people don't end up in crisis. Um, biotin we'll talk more about, but biotin is a really uh, tricky um, a supplement that can have an effect on a lot of hormonal measurements. So um, if someone's on biotin, it's really probably a good idea to have them hold it for a week before you do any sort of endocrine testing. And then finally, I, I'm, I'm sure many of you have heard of these medications because they're being used so commonly for treatment of metastatic malignancies, but the CTLA-4 inhibitors and the PD-1 inhibitors, these are really amazing um, uh, therapies that have been used with a lot of benefit for people who had basically disease that was not treatable years ago. But interestingly, they have a lot of endocrine um, side effects, uh, one of which is hypophysitis um, and then primary adrenal insufficiency. They can also cause thyroid issues and type 1 diabetes. So um, these drugs can have a real impact on um, a number of different adrenal axes. So if people have gotten these medications, it's good to think about um, adrenal insufficiency. And it doesn't tend to resolve. Most people who develop adrenal insufficiency on these drugs are, need to be on steroids permanently. This was an interesting um, uh, review that I found um, a couple of, a few different things, but this top uh, uh, information about support uh, supplements was very interesting and a bit spooky to me, um, just because I have so many patients, one I saw yesterday who is 82 years old on like, I mean, probably on 20 supplements, and I really have no idea what it is that she's taking. She just has bottles and bottles of this stuff that she's paying for out of pocket. Um, and this was one review looking at adrenal support. Um, so. 
in um, uh, the naturopathic community and alternative practitioners, they often have different support kind of um, therapies that they offer, thyroid support and adrenal support being the most common ones, at least that I see. And this is a review that looked at these different um, cocktails of adrenal support to see what was actually in them and compared to what was on the label. And um, basically all of these 12 um, supplements that they looked at contained uh, T3, um, between uh, 10 and 40% contained adrenal steroids and, and or budesonide, which is a steroid. None of these were listed on the label. So when people are taking supplements, often they'll, I'll have them take pictures of them. They'll send me a picture of what's on sort of the label. And what I've kind of deduced is that that still may not be what's actually in the bottle or in the, the medication that they're taking. So supplements can really have a big impact and it's really hard to know what people are actually taking. Um, pregnenolone is also a supplement that gets a lot of press on the internet. It's a precursor of a lot of adrenal hormones. It's been promoted as being anti-aging, supposed to uh, boost downstream hormones, but there's really no evidence of benefit. And the same is true for DHEA. Um, women often will uh, ask about DHEA as a, a supplement that might be helpful for um, libido, um, but it is an androgenic steroid. And so just to be really careful if women are taking high doses of DHEA, because it can have some effect, uh, effect on acne, hair growth, that type of thing, because it is an androgen. So getting back to our case, um, so this remember this was the 47-year-old who was on uh, basal bolus insulin, A1C, not under great control, but feeling really tired and depressed and was curious about maybe something else that might be worth looking at in terms of uh, finding an alternative provider. And I just wanted to um, mention a couple of things because I know these patients can be really, really difficult. These can be really difficult conversations to have with people. Often, you know, they come in with all their medications and a lot of um, challenging beliefs, stuff that we may not know anything about or understand very well. Um, and I think especially in, in our kind of our current environment of COVID and having very difficult conversations with people about a lot of things and a lot of feelings around, I think, um, you know, taking a deep breath and trying to, you know, uh, have some compassion for these folks because often they're suffering, they don't feel good, they want to feel better, and you know they're just trolling the, the web to try to find something that might help. So I do find that you know trying to explain the physiology of the HPA axis it often doesn't a conversation that goes very well. Um, that uh, you know they've already either read about it or you know feel like they know more than you do or what have you. And I often find that you can kind of get like your kids in with a bit of a power struggle, and that's just not really all that helpful. Um, I often spend time uh, trying to talk about you know just listening to them. Uh, explore how they eat, how they sleep, you know, what the stressors are in their life, because often they'll start off with information about the supplements and the naturopathic interaction, and then they'll start talking about some of the nitty-gritty about, like, you know, how, you know, their relationship with their partner isn't going well, their kids aren't doing well in school, their job is terrible. So all these things that really could be contributing to the symptoms that they're experiencing, and that's often what naturopaths spend time talking to people about is sleep, activity, and, and diet. Um, but it's not an easy conversation. It takes a lot of time. Um, you want to make sure you're not missing another diagnosis. So thinking about adrenal insufficiency, thinking about thyroid issues, and we'll talk more about that. And these are a couple of resources at the bottom that I actually thought were pretty well done. The first is for patients. It's basically a cartoon that talks about adrenal fatigue in a very non-confrontational, not super cutesy way. Um, and I thought it was really um, good information. Um, and I would definitely recommend it to patients who come in asking about this. And then for providers, this is a piece that was an end 
endocrine practice a few years back where this doctor just kind of put together a two-page perspective on how she approaches uh, patients who come in with questions around adrenal fatigue. And I thought it was really helpful. It was coming from a much more compassionate uh, place. So um, it's worth a read as well. So for our um, patients, what do you think about the work of Dr. Wilson, the diagnosis of adrenal fatigue? I would just encourage you to resist, resist the shaming. Um, I know as I get towards the end of my clinic day, it's, you know, my eyes start to roll back in my head as they, you know, just as this conversation unfolds. And it's really hard to not summon up all this compassion that you want to have that maybe you may have had earlier in the day. So I do just, you know, do your best, take a deep breath, uh, notice your feet, try to be mindful, all of that kind of stuff, um, and explore what they're looking for. Because I do think that will lead to a more successful conversation than confrontation and power struggles. Um, in terms of testing that you might recommend, I often talk to people about different perspectives, uh, you know, as an allopathic doctor versus a naturopathic doctor. Um, I would consider a morning cortisol just to make sure you're not missing anything. Of course, thyroid also would be worth uh, evaluating. And then I would talk about the controversy with the testing because it's so expensive and people spend so much money on this stuff. Um, it's just just explaining the differences there. Um, and then should she worry about these supplements? Absolutely. I would definitely have people be very cautious uh, about taking natural medications because they really are drugs. So moving on to talk about thyroid. Uh, so um, in this next segment, we're going to primarily be focusing on hypothyroidism and talking about uh, what's listed here. And again, starting with the case. So this is a 42-year-old type 2 diabetes uh, under good control with an A1C of 6.7 on metformin and dilaglutide, which is trulicity. And she has a long-standing history of hypothyroidism, but it's been well, well uh, treated with uh, 150 micrograms per day. And she's been on that same dose for about the past five years. And you can see her TSH is right in target range. And she's had ongoing issues with fatigue and difficulty losing weight and is frustrated. And again, has been trolling the internet looking for ideas or things that might happen that she might be able to do with her thyroid medication. So she comes in wondering about you know, should she be on Armour Thyroid? Should she be on T3? You know, should she have more extensive testing? Should she have her antibody levels checked? And should those be monitored? And she's wondering if she should be um, uh, limiting gluten. Does anyone see people like this in their practice or people coming in with questions about this kind of stuff? I see this stuff all the time. So let's talk a little bit about what we know about this. So. Again, everything in endocrinology is a feedback loop, so thyroid is no different than the adrenal. Again, it all starts up with the hypothalamus and the pituitary, which go on to stimulate the thyroid to produce primarily T4, but a little bit of T3 as well. When you're testing this axis, it's really useful to start with the TSH. It's a really accurate test, um, but it is impacted by other illness, medications, et cetera. So if you get an abnormal test initially, it's just good to retest it six to eight weeks later because sometimes things just do normalize. Most people do. Um, we'll talk a little bit more about how TSH um, rises as people get older, and it may, may impact the targets that you're aiming for because um, uh, that just tends to be a natural change that happens. Um, if you have a TSH that's abnormal, adding a free T4 is a good place to start just to get a sense of what's going on with the axis and the feedback loop. T3 is a less helpful test. I know patients come in and often ask me for a full thyroid panel and they want T3, T4, TSH, reverse T3. I mean, all this stuff that I don't really know how to interpret. But I would say that the, if you can push back on the T3, it's, it's, it's a test that's less helpful because the T3 is a really short um, acting hormone and there's a lot of variability in the values and it just can kind of shoot you in the foot if it's a little bit on the low side in terms of being pushed to add T3 to the regimen. Generally, my um, approach is that 
your body naturally converts T4 to T3. That's a natural thing that happens in your body. And so adding T3 often throws that out of balance. And we'll talk more about that. Some common orders that I see that really don't help in someone who's established and has longstanding hypothyroidism, like this patient we just mentioned, are antibody, is antibody testing. So thyroid peroxidase is probably the most common uh, antibody that we measure in people with autoimmune thyroid disease or where you're exploring for autoimmune thyroid disease, and thyroglobulin is another one. Um, they're markers of autoimmune um, autoimmunity. Um, and if you have somebody with long-standing hypothyroidism, it doesn't really add very much to your workup. I do see, you know, people sometimes will have their antibody tests monitored. Once you're positive, they're kind of, you know what the cause is and you can put that as, as a diagnosis, but it's not like it, you know, changes and you're going to change what you do. So monitoring antibody testing really isn't something that's all that helpful in my mind. I will talk more about places where you would maybe think about doing antibody testing, but I wouldn't in a case like this of someone who's been pretty stable. Um, ultrasounds are often done for people with hypothyroidism. And again, I think it's important. It's good to do an ultrasound if you're looking for something anatomic. So if you palpate a nodule, if you know you notice some asymmetry, it's great to do an ultrasound. But for someone with long-standing hypothyroidism who doesn't have any sort of anatomic abnormalities or concerns, there's not really much value to doing ultrasounds or imaging. This, um, this is just gonna go through some of the kind of nuts and bolts of thyroid replacement. And this is really important. We get a lot of questions about thyroid replacement, especially through um, e-consults and Epic. So I just wanted to run through this um, quickly just so we're all on the same page. So when you have somebody with hypothyroidism, in general, the replacement dose is about 1.6 micrograms per kilogram. That's of true body weight, not ideal body weight. I never know how to do it for ideal body weight because everyone's usually less. <laughs> so usually for their true body weight, 1.6 microgram per, per kilogram is what you want to start with. Um, that you, you can start with that dose in someone who's healthy. Um, in someone who's more frail or elderly or has heart disease, you probably would want to start with 25 to 50 micrograms and titrate up. People have had their thyroid taken out for a variety of different reasons, often need more thyroid replacement, more like 2.1 micrograms per kilo. So you might notice that different uh, difference in someone who's had thyroid cancer or some other reason why their thyroid's been taken out. And it's um, there's often a lot of conversation about generic versus brand name with thyroid replacement. And I just wanted to mention that, um, you know, there is um, an approved amount of variation in terms of how much drug can actually be in generic medications in terms of thyroid medicine. So there will be some variability up to 5% in the different generics. And some people who are like exquisitely sensitive to differences in their thyroid levels or, you know, because if they get one generic, for a 90-day period, and then they get a different generic for a 90-day period, often they will notice that they feel different or that their thyroid levels are different. In those patients, it's probably better to brand, use brand name, um, such as Synthroid, where you're just getting the same thing every with every pill. Um, levothyroxine is absorbed in the duodenum and converted to T3 peripherally, like we talked about. Um, and when you start somebody on thyroid or adjust their dose, be sure to just uh, follow up and check labs uh, six to eight, week later, eight weeks later and then adjust like I have described there. Um, there's also often questions about how to take thyroid medication. And I would say just taking it daily is probably the best place to start. Um, levothyroxine is a little bit tricky in that there are a number of um, calcium, iron, medications that can interfere with the absorption. So you do want to try to separate it from those um, uh, 
those uh, medicines or from food. Um, and if someone misses a dose, you can take two pills the next day. So that's kind of a nice alternative for people who may struggle with remembering to take their medicine is that you can take two if they missed it the day before. I don't tend to get too um, uh, worked up about this dosing thing. I have a lot of patients who you know, get up in the middle of the night and take their pill because they want to take it on an empty stomach. I think that's great if that works for your schedule. I think just making sure people take it regularly is at least a good place to start. And whatever works for them is probably as long as they're consistent will, will work fine. The TSH target that you're aiming for, um, this is a normogram um, that I just found online that really reflects that most people sit with a TSH generally between about 0.6 and 2.6. There are these outliers over here that some have suggested are potentially people with early thyroid autoimmunity um, and may be at higher risk for de developing hypothyroidism down the road. But in general, if you can keep people's TSHs between 0.6 and 3, that's the target that you're aiming for. However, if someone is older, you may feel more comfortable with letting them drift up a bit higher. So this is a graph from a publication from a couple of years ago that shows that people, as people do get older, their TSH does naturally start to rise so that in uh, once you're over 90, having values in the five, six, seven, eight range is not unusual. And that you want to think about keeping that in mind as you're putting people on replacement and potentially not be at being as aggressive as people age because it may be more natural or normal for them to have higher TSH values. So this is a nice table from the same paper that talks about fit patients versus frail patients and how you would kind of follow their TSH value over here and either treat or observe depending on how, um, how function, what their functional status is in their age. Subclinical hypothyroidism is also a hot topic, and I'd be happy to take questions about this at the end because often there's um, uh, everyone has examples of people who have TSHs between four, six, seven, um, and don't know quite what to, to do with those folks, whether or not they should be on uh, therapy. This is a really nice paper that was published in JAMA a few years ago that reviews subclinical hypothyroidism. And I just wanted to include this table. So subclinical hypothyroidism is defined as an elevated TSH uh, with a normal free T4. There may be some associated risks with not treating uh, this syndrome, um, but the outcomes are really variable. Uh, depending on how you decide to move forward in terms of treatment. And again, this is just a nice figure that shows, depending on what uh, a person's TSH is and what their age is, how you could consider um, adding therapy. Um, again, with older people, um, potentially letting their TSH drift a little bit higher before you add, um, uh, add or adjust uh, their medication. So desiccated thyroid extract is armor. Um, and I wanted to talk a little bit about this because we get a lot of questions about armor and these um, kind of thyroid concoctions that people, um, that there's a lot of information online about. So um, basically desiccated thyroid act, uh, extract is a clean dried powdered thyroid gland derived from domesticated animals used for food by humans. I think that's a really, I'm not sure people who ask about this know that's actually what that is what this is, because um, that just doesn't sound very good. Um, <laughs> so, it's kinda, uh, so it's usually coming from pigs and cows. Um, some, uh, some have both. Um, there's been a lot of controversy around using uh, desiccated thyroid extract um, due to what's listed here below, which is that in pigs and cows, um, the ratio of thyroid hormone is not the same as it is in humans. So in humans, the ratio is 14 to 1 T4 to T3. 
in these animals, it's more like four to one. So what that ends up doing is giving you a lot more T3, and often that's very stimulating. Um, people like having more T3, it often gives them energy, and we'll talk more about using T3 as a separate um, uh, replacement strategy rather than using it in combination here. But it's pretty tricky to adjust this medication, just like 70-30 insulin. When you have two drugs and one pill, you can't adjust one or the other. You have to adjust both. And it tends to put people at a higher risk for becoming hyperthyroid. And once you're going down that path of somebody who's on armor and hyperthyroid, it is really tough to get them off that path. They just feel better. And when you try to reduce the dose, often um, there's a lot of symptoms associated with your body adjusting to a different TSH um, or a different target, and uh, it can be a very kind of difficult uh, situation. So if people are asking about it and you have the opportunity to kind of nip that in the bud, I would really encourage you to do that. And it's no, no organization recommends using this, this kind of um, uh, replacement. I will say that I do have a few people that are on it, and it is possible to keep the thyroid levels in um, a target range and feel more comfortable with using that combination, but we just don't tend to want to use it um, in most people. It's also a lot more expensive, and I found recently it's, a, it's harder to access, so people have a hard time getting this from pharmacies. So if you aren't going to use desiccated thyroid extract because it's just too much T3, I think it is worth considering if you have somebody who come back, comes back to you with a TSH of 2 but still feels tired, thinking about whether or not you might want to try adding some T3 to their cocktail of uh, thyroid replacement. And it's estimated um, there was a recent American Thyroid Association paper or summary that described um, uh, uh, kind of a rethinking of the T3, T4 combination and a call for more re research um, that it's still they, not recommended and considered experimental, but I think there will be more coming out or at least more kind of uh, exploration of this possibility because almost half of people who are put on thyroid replacement don't feel better. <clears throat> um, the data that we have so far really hasn't shown a lot of conclusive benefits to using T3 and T4 in combination, but I know anecdotally I have people that do feel better, and, and I'm sure some of you do as well if you add T3 to the T4 combination. I will also say that if you decide to add T3, as long as you keep their TSH levels kind of in target range and you're not over-treating people, there's pretty limited risk. There's no increased risk of cardiovascular disease, AFib, or fractures. And remember, that's only if you keep the TSH, their thyroid levels in target. So T3 by itself doesn't cause problems. It's only if you give people too much. Um, it does increase cost, as you can see here. It's not a huge cost, and there is generic T3 that's available, um, but it would be two pills instead of just one. And again, just to drill into some of the details, um, this is basically how you can, there's a great piece in Up to Date about how to, to transition someone from T4 to T4 plus T3. And these are just some examples of how to think about someone who's on 100 micrograms of T4, switching them to T3 plus T4. T3 is about three to four times more potent than um, uh, T4, so you can kind of do that math in your head, um, and that's what's described uh, here, not to bore you to death with all the math stuff. Um, there is some thought that T3 should divide, be divided into two doses, again, because of that diurnal variability in thyroid levels. Um, I traditionally don't do that because that just makes pill taking a lot more complicated, but it is something to consider, especially if people have a lot of afternoon fatigue. Um, and uh, you do, again, want to talk to people about the challenges and risks with taking too much thyroid replacement. So osteoporosis, cardiac arrhythmias, all of that stuff, and reminding people the natural conversion of T4 to T3, because um, there are risks, again, if people take too much of any type of thyroid hormone. 
And I just thought this was interesting because, you know, we go through all of this sort of all these gyrations around, you know, what target and, blah, blah, blah. and I think a lot of this is often driven by patients who, you know, now with Epic, they're getting their lab results before you even have a chance to look at them. And they're often emailing like, oh, my TSH was, you know, 2.5. Shouldn't it be lower or whatever? Um, and the truth is, is that, you know, when you're targeting a number, it actually the evidence that there's a lot of clinical improvement, you know, may or symptom improvement may not be as conclusive. So these are a couple of studies that I just found that I thought were interesting to introduce this idea. The first uh, was done by Dr. John Kless, a smaller study of 56 people who received differing doses with a TSH target to try to get their TSH values either to around three, one, or 0.3, and there was really no significant difference in symptoms, quality of life, or cognitive uh, function. So people really couldn't tell where they were in terms of if they were blinded to what their TSH level and what their thyroid replacement was. Kind of interesting. I think this bottom study is even more interesting. Mary Samuels did this, who's up at OHSU. Um, and this was a larger 138 patients who were treated with T4 and then randomly assigned again, were blinded, so they didn't know what their dose was or what their TSH was. And here it's pr a pretty good spread. It was like 0.3 to 2.5, up to 5.6, and then up to 12. And there was no difference, again, in quality of life, um, cognitive function, and uh, all of this was evaluated um, at the end of six months. But the, the patients all reported that they preferred that, um, that their doses be higher, that they felt like if they had the idea that their doses were higher and their TSH was lower, that they, would, that they felt better. So again, there's just that bias out there that people, I think, because of what, they read online, what they've read online and what's out there in the, um, in the communities, that having a lower TSH is somehow better. Moving on to talk a little bit about other supplement and diet questions, just to briefly talk about iodine. So more is not better. About 150 micrograms is recommended uh, per day. In the United States, we're generally thought to be iodine sufficient. Um, and just be careful, because sometimes I do see people who are you know, taking iodine capsules or seaweed or kelp or whatever, because um, they think that iodine is helpful for their thyroid. And it really can cause um, hypo or hyperthyroidism, depending on what their underlying issues are. Um, cruciferous vegetables. I've actually never had anyone who's told me that they're eating more Brussels sprouts or broccoli to help with their thyroid function, but apparently these are um, foods that are rich in gly um, glucosinates um, and that can interfere with thyroid hormone synthesis. And there's one case report of a gal who was 88 years old who ate 1.5 kilos of bok choy, which is sort of interesting, um, and ended up having a uh, myxedema coma. I've never seen a case like that. And, you know, the smaller study below talks about broccoli sprout consumption and didn't really have much effect on thyroid, but I guess if you can overdo that, you can have some thyroid issues. I did want to mention biotin. I've already talked a little bit about it. Biotin is a supplement that a lot of people take for hair and nail growth, and it really can affect thyroid levels in a lot of endocrine testing. Um, it actually doesn't cause your thyroid levels to be out of whack. It just interferes with the assay. So most of our assays are sandwich assays and biotin interferes with that. And so it, the results when people are on biotin looks like hyperthyroidism. The TSH is lower and the free T4 is more, free T4 is more elevated. So it's really important if you have the opportunity to have people stop their biotin three to seven days before they have their blood work drawn. And it really seems like there's a lot of endocrine hormones and other you know, measurements that we do that may be impacted by biotin um, interfering with the assay. So it might be good to have everybody stop biotin before they do their testing in most cases. And then finally, gluten. I, people ask me about gluten all the time when they have um, Hashimoto's or hypothyroidism. And it's a really common recommendation from a lot of alternative providers that eliminating gluten will somehow make your thyroid 
levels better or you feel better. I'm not totally sure what the, the theory is behind that. Um, but there is, again, not a lot of science behind this. There was one pooled analysis that showed that people with autoimmune thyroid disease had an increased prevalence of celiac, but that's kind of a no-brainer. They're both autoimmune and they kind of travel together. And then the only other study that I could find looking for a relationship here was a group of women who had positive antibodies but didn't have any thyroid abnormalities and basically being on a gluten-free diet had really no impact in terms of thyroid function. I do think that sometimes eliminating gluten forces people to eat more fruits and vegetables and so that's a good thing. So may that may be partly why people feel better, um, but I don't think the gluten has an impact on uh, uh, autoimmunity with thyroid, at least not from what we know so far. So, um, Getting back to our case, um, she's doing well in terms of replacement. So this is what I would talk to her about if she's still feeling fatigued and she wants to explore some options. I would consider transitioning her to T4 and T3 if she felt like that might be um, just to see if it might be helpful. Um, and below you can see kind of the dosing that I would consider, 125 of the T4 and then seven and a half of the T3 that you could consider splitting, um, like five in the morning or two and a half later in the day. Um, I would not recommend following antibody levels. Um, I just don't think that adds anything or provides any value unless there's some concern like what, what's causing their hypothyroidism. And there's no diet recommendation, but eating well and healthily um, is something that everyone should try to do. And then finally, just to briefly talk about ionized calcium, we don't see a lot of um, patients that are referred to us with ionized calcium levels drawn, but it does come up on occasion, and it's often sort of the shotgun approach where you can just see people are just doing like tons of labs because they don't know what to do, and they're just like ordering stuff. So ionized calcium is often in there when people are getting evaluated for hyper or hypocalcemia. So I just wanted to talk a little bit about it. So this is a patient that we saw recently. Um, no real past medical history. She did have this hypercalcemia, so it was referred to CS. And you can see her lab work shows her to have a calcium level, in, uh, level of 11. Blood counts normal. Thyroid looks fine. Creatinine's fine. Electrolytes look fine, but she does have a PTH that's elevated. Normal's up to 65. Hers was 82, and she's got a vitamin D that's fine. So does she need an ionized calcium measured? So just to review quickly, extracellular calcium is a pretty small amount of the total body content. Most, most is in tissues and bones. Um, about 50% uh, that circulates is ionized, and it's tightly regulated by PTH. Um, and the PTH just responds to try to increase uh, resorption from the kidney, convert more 25 to 125, so you can get more from uh, D from the gut and calcium from the gut. And ionized calcium really is going to be affected by acid-base status and albumin levels. Um, it is probably the best test to evaluate someone's calcium stat status, but it's a complicated test to do and it's expensive. Most of the time, I would say for us, uh, just calculating an albumin, uh, a correcting calcium based on albumin is a, a totally fine way to assess um, calcium status. However, there are exceptions where ionized calcium can be useful, and it's mostly when people are in the hospital and they're sicker. So people are getting transfusions, who are in the unit, who have chronic kidney disease after parathyroid surgery, and if they're getting treated with certain chemotherapeutic drugs. Those are people that ionized calcium might be helpful in terms of giving you different information. So in this patient, she looks like she has primary hyperparathyroidism. She's got an elevated PTH and elevated calcium. So that's the, the etiology. I don't think an ionized calcium would be helpful in her situation at all. So I would definitely not recommend it. So I think we talked about adrenal fatigue, talked about thyroid, talked about ionized calcium. And I think I've got about 10 minutes for questions if people have them and I'd be happy to answer. Thank you, everybody. We actually have kind of a nice quorum. Yeah, it's awesome. <laughs>
Can I start with someone who's here? Got her hand raised? Yeah, many. Thanks, Dr. Stevens. We'll start with a question here. Hi, Dr. Stevens. Um, I was wondering if you could give us your spiel for um, respective, respectfully declining to order labs that the naturopath has requested mm -hmm. when you're talking to your patient. Right, right. Yeah, so the question is, um, what is my approach for ordering labs that are being requested by the naturopath that don't make any sense to you and um, that are going to come back resulted to you that you're not going to know how to interpret. Um, that is um, uh, a really common thing that I hear primary care providers talking uh, about because I think they get asked that a lot when they're being co-managed by uh, uh, patients being managed by a naturopath. Um, I, you know, my approach is to just have that kind of frank conversation, um, and it's pretty uncomfortable, um, you know, just discussing that, I mean, first of all, that for you to be ordering tests that you don't know what the value of it is, and if something comes back abnormal, how are you supposed to interpret that when you have no idea what they're taking? Um, uh, it just doesn't make any sense. So the person who's managing the disease is the person who should be ordering the tests, and the person who's medicating and prescribing is the one that should be ordering the test. And if the if this provider is ordering um, medication and therapies and you know support, you know hormonal support, they're the one that should be doing the lab test. I know it's a cost issue for a lot of patients, and I can appreciate that some of it might make sense. You know, if if there are other issues, you know, CMPs and CBCs and all that kind of stuff. But when you start getting into these hormonal profiles, boy, I mean, often it's a lot of really irrelevant stuff. I see actually a fair amount of naturopaths ordering it now because it feels like I, I don't know if anything's changed, but often I'll see the you know huge list of stuff that the naturopath does. Um, I don't know if that's been different for in your experience recently, but I don't feel like I'm getting as many questions or requests to do that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, of course. It's not a great answer, but I think it's probably the same thing that you do. It's just uncomfortable. Great. I'm going to interject one question from our online audience here and then come back to the room. Um, this is a question specifically from a rheumatologist Ooh. seeking an endocrine community opinion. Um, they are wondering, as part of an evaluation for a positive ANA, Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> In a patient with hyperthyroidism or hypothyroidism, is the thyroid antibody testing helpful in an effort to try to convince the patient that the positive ANA is related to the thyroid disease? I have no idea. No. I've never actually come up against that as a request or a question. Got it. I don't know the answer yeah. to that. Yeah. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, I suspect sorry. it is the struggle of dealing with the positive ANA right. in a patient. Yeah. Without concern for other rheumatologic disease. Yeah. Yeah. Difficult to know if you can blame it on the thyroid. Yeah. It is hard to know if you can. I, you know, in, in my review, you know, putting this whole thing together, I did not see anything talked about with that. I think, you know, reflexively doing antibody, more antibody tests, because then you're going to have a positive thyroid, you know, then what do you do with that? A TPO, then, you know, someone's kind of diagnosing themselves as having Hashimoto's and all the consequences of that. So I don't know. Yeah, I have not come across Perhaps that. if they have known hypothyroidism. Yeah, yeah, it might be supportive. Yeah. yeah, great. Yeah. Uh, I think there was a hand in the room here. Thank you. For, for patients with difficulty with compliance for thyroid replacement, I know you said they can take like every other day. Have you ever heard of weekly dosing and is that safe? Have you ever used that? Yeah. 
Yeah, so the question is about people who have issues with adherence. Um, and I've had, I've definitely had a few over the years that um, just taking a pill every day just is not something that they've been able to um, master. Um, so there are a couple, I haven't looked recently, but I know in the past there were, there were a couple of case reports of people who would do weekly, would actually come in for observed kind of dosing of their thyroid replacement weekly. Um, Oh boy, that would be motivating to me to take a pill every day. But anyway, they would come in and take their, you know, seven pills of their 150 micrograms at a time. And the um, and the outcomes were better um, than just leaving them on their own for people who are just having issues with adherence. So um, it can be effective. I sometimes get a little bit nervous about, you know, because often there are people that are taking big doses. And so you're giving like, you know, a lot. Um, and so sometimes that feels a bit uncomfortable, but um, there's no evidence at least that I could, that, at least in the case reports that describe there being bad outcomes that way. I know there are, um, we also have had some uh, patients in our endocrine practice who have gut issues with absorption of the pills and they'll come in for, in, you know, infusions of IV levothyroxine too in certain circumstances. So um, you can dose it uh, less frequently with big doses. Yeah, I mean, I don't know that it, I, um, I, those the situations that I've been in have been more along the lines of observed therapy where people just cannot get their act together. And it's mostly just to prove that they can normalize their TSH if they take it consistently. Um, I haven't recommended that to someone just because they can't remember to take a pill except for Fridays. Yeah, most people can do it like three times a week and just take double doses. Of course. Great. Thanks so much. I've got a next um, brief question online, which you may or may not have the answer at your fingertips. Um, <laughs> since biotin does seem to interfere with these um, lab assays, are you aware, does biotin work for hair and nails? <laughs> um, I do not know. I, I, I would say anecdotally, I mean, a lot of people take it and patients tell me that it helps. I don't know. I don't have a measure of like nail growth or hair growth or what have you. Um, that I can kind of, that will validate that. Great, maybe a future grand round. <laughs>Hey, um, you might have mentioned this earlier, but the armor, um, have you noticed in any of your research any increased risk of like cardiovascular disease with armor or any other bad side effects? Yeah, yeah. so the question is um, side effects with armor. Um, spe not specifically, there's there's not really a whole lot that's been published about outcomes with people that are randomized to either T4 or armor. Um, most of the literature is about, you know, uh, T3, T4 combinations, so two separate and then um, versus T4 alone. And that hasn't shown any kind of significant benefit. Again, that's for people who are treated to TSH targets in range. Um, the tricky part about armor is that it tends to make people hyperthyroid and that is associated with, you know, rhythm issues and osteoporosis and all of that kind of stuff. That being said, I have patients who are on armor or, um, you know, something like that, nature thyroid, who uh, can keep their thyroid levels in target and I feel more comfortable. People are very attached to their armor or armor-like you know, replacement. And so often getting them off of it is a bit tricky, but I think if you can keep their TSH and their, their numbers in a target range, I, I feel more comfortable using that combination, but I definitely don't start people with it. I always would just use T4 and T3. It's just, you know, when people come already on it, that it sometimes is a hard conversation. And traditionally what you'll see is that 
<coughs> because of all the T3 that's in armor, um, it suppresses their TSH, uh, their free T4 will be normal, and then they don't take their pill before they get their blood work done, so their T3 looks fine. So that's often, you know, they're just, they're subclinically hyperthyroid because the, the armor just gives them too much T3. Great, many thanks for that clarity. Um, comment online, Dr. Stevens, great talk. Um, do you have any thoughts about endocrine disrupting chemicals in the environment? Um, do I have any thoughts about that? Um, th that's probably another talk that you could do because there's been a lot. I mean, there's been guidelines from the Endocrine Society and such. Um, I don't. That's not really my area of expertise, so I don't really have a perspective that way. I know that they're out there and there's a lot of concerns, um, you know, and plastics, et cetera, but I don't really have much of a comment beyond that. Right, concern and plastics yeah. and yeah. pediatric yeah, community as well. it's definitely an area of, mm -hmm. you know, a lot of worry. Great. Well, we are coming up to the top of the order. I'll take uh, one last pass for questions here in the room. Right. Great, thank you, Dr. Yeah. Stevens. Welcome. A lot of clarity for challenging topics.